Guys, if you have a copy of his word, I invite you to open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 35. We're going to be continuing on with our study of the I Ams of Jesus Christ, the Ego Emi. And if you've been with us over the past number of weeks, we've been continually going through the seven I Ams of Jesus as we read in the Gospel of John. And this week we're going to be looking at the I Am, the Bread of Life. So we'll just read down through it together. So Gospel of John chapter 6 verse 35. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your father father is at the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the word is my flesh. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. But just before we start, we'll just pray together. Let's pray. Father, I come before you now, Lord. And I pray, God, that you be exalted through the study of your word this morning. I pray, Father, for each of us, God, as our heads are bowed in your presence, Lord. As we have already prayed, Lord. We will have the ears that are attentive to your word this morning. We pray, Father, for your word to pierce our hearts, Lord. We pray, Father, for this word to give us life, God, and for us to understand this saying, I am the bread of life that Jesus says in this passage. Father, we thank you for your presence this morning. We ask you, Lord, to be with us and guide us and to speak to us now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you know, we've been continuing on with this sermon series, Ego Emi. For anybody who hasn't been up to speed, the Ego Emi is basically I am, I am. It is the Greek pointing us back to the Tetragrammaton, the uh, Hebrew word for God being Yahweh, and how this Ego Emi is the Greek word for Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament, the Centuagint. Now, What we have been looking at continually throughout this is the pointing of Jesus to himself and his deity, his his divine self. And when we come to Christ, we understand that there's two aspects of Christ that we have to fully understand. 
Now, many people will say that Christ is fully man and fully God. I believe a more or a better interpretation is that Jesus is truly man and truly God. For if he was fully man, there's no room for him to also be fully God. So when we come to Christ, we can say that he is truly God and truly man. And the whole point of these ego emis, the I am, I am, it is the, the best statement that you could possibly use for Christ to draw himself and draw those who are listening back to the fact that he is God incarnate before them veiled in flesh. And we've looked at that extensively. And this morning as we read in the beginning of chapter, or sorry, in the beginning of verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Again, he uses this term ego emi. He once again says, I am, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now this passage is, we've looked at it already, so I'm hoping not to go over old ground. Whenever we went through the sermon series, Sola Scriptura, we spent a lot of time in this. Whenever it came to predestination, whenever it came to election, whenever it came to God's sovereign, merciful choice of who will actually receive the gospel. So this morning, I want to point less to the deity of Christ and point more to the humanity of Christ. Because whenever it comes to this passage and Jesus is pointing those who are hearing it and us who are reading it, that he is the bread of life. That all that the Father gives me will come to me. And immediately you have a split in the camp with that verse. You have either people who fall into the Pelagian theology, which means that man is able in his own strength, he is able in his own spirit to choose God without any divine intercession, without God opening his eyes, without God softening his heart, without God revealing the gospel to that person. And as we looked at the white sola scripture, we fall more into the Augustan theology, which is that man is incapable as he is dead in sin, dead in his trespasses, blind and wretched, is completely incapable in his own strength in choosing God. We would not have a desire to choose God unless God changed our, in, our inclination towards desiring him. And we see that as we read down through in verse 43, whenever Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, when we looked at Sola Scriptura, we, we looked at that Greek word for draws and how that word is used in the New Testament in the book of Acts whenever we see the apostles dragged in to the presence of the leaders and how draws would be better to be translated as compels. So in other words, it is not that God is trying to woo the person. It is that God reveals himself in the spirit to somebody who is completely ignorant and undesiring towards the gospel. And because of that drawing and compelling, he or she then desires the gospel, accepts Christ and accepts the fullness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Two different words would be Calvinistic or Arminian. I don't really like to use those words because there's more complications that comes with those words. But ultimately, you either have two type of people today. 
what I believe and what we hopefully believe to be true biblical doctrine as is expounded as we did throughout Romans 8 and 9 about how Esau I hated but Jacob I loved and how it is God's divine mercy on whom he chooses to reveal himself to that ultimately will choose to accept Jesus. We also have different passages. If we step outside of the text we're looking at this morning, if you look at um, verse 63, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. This is the reason why so many of us have testimonies of how the gospel was not something that we desired. We had no desire to have a relationship with Jesus. We had no desire to die to self. It was the working and dwelling of the Holy Spirit within us that first changed us, that made us desire to come to Christ and accept the gospel. We also see that in verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So even though Jesus says in this passage in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that anyone who looks in the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Anyone who looks at Jesus after the Holy Spirit has revealed the fullness and the goodness of the gospel will be saved. This is why you could walk out today and you could evangelize. And you could tell somebody in the mall or someone in your workplace the fullness and the goodness that is the good news, the life and work of Jesus Christ, and that they can be redeemed from their sins. They can be brought out of the muck and the mire and the darkness in which they dwell in, and they will either accept it or they won't accept it. Or sometimes you have somebody who will fight it and fight it and fight it and fight it, and then one day come to the realization, not by themselves, but by divine intervention by the Holy Spirit, that they need a substitute, a sacrifice for their sin, that is Christ Jesus. That might, I've glanced over that very quickly. If you're not familiar with that, you can go online, you can listen to Sola Scriptura, where I go into it extensively. But one of the reasons why Jesus and John, particularly here in this gospel, points us to these I am's, is in the first century church, there was a problem in understanding the full deity of Christ. And understanding the fact that he was truly God and yet truly man. And this is why John is pointing us, the readers, to this fact. Today, however, we nearly live in a generation where we fully understand the sonship of Jesus Christ. We understand the deity of Jesus. We understand that he is God incarnate through passages like this, the ego emis that we've looked at and others but yet we lose the humanity of Christ. And it's understanding the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ that we can better understand how the gospel works. For example, whenever we think of the humanity of Christ, where would we turn to in our Bibles to better understand this term? Because before we even turn to look at the humanity of Christ, we have to understand how the gospel works. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ understand that Jesus died on a cross as a substitute atonement for us. In other words, we, a sinner, deserve death before a holy, righteous God. Jesus, however, took upon himself all our sin. The word that is used is imputed. In other words, given. Our sin is imputed to Christ upon the cross 
Everything that I've ever done, everything that I ever will do, was placed upon Jesus Christ, and He paid the full penalty for our sins. That's what made us. That's what made us sinless before a holy God. But then we have to ask ourselves, what makes us righteous? And this is a very important thing for us to understand whenever it comes to Jesus' humanity. Because if our sins were imputed to Christ, His righteousness was imputed to us. What does that mean? It means that at the point of conversion, you are as righteous as you will ever be. Even though you will go through the sanctification process, even though you will turn away from sins, you will grow in your understanding of Christ. We have to be careful that we do not fall into what is Catholicism, the way in which the Catholic Church view atonement and view righteousness and how they do not view that the human side of Jesus, the fact that he was truly human, the fact that he lived the perfect sinless human existence and life, that that life of existence, that righteous life that he lived is then imputed to you. They believe it is imparted to you. It is infused to you. Is that important for us to understand? Whenever Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he points to his deity. But we also have to understand he's also pointing us to the fact that even as he says, I am the bread of life, I am Yahweh, I am God incarnate before you now, veiled in flesh, I am also fully and truly human. Why is that important? Because the Catholic Church and other people who preach a false gospel will say that Jesus' righteousness is not imputed to you, given to you, it is imparted to you or infused in you. What's the difference? The difference is if Christ's righteousness is imparted to you or infused to you, it is given to you, but it is up to you then to start to live a righteous life yourself. So as you go through the sanctification process, in essence, you're becoming more and more and more righteous before a holy God and we enter into a works-based theology. The important thing, that the reason why we worship God for Jesus Christ, we worship Him for Christ's deity, and we worship Him for Christ's humanity. Because that is the only hope for us who are sinful men and women to understand that I stand here today, although more sanctified through the sanctification process, no more or no less righteous than I was before God on the day of my saving. Because on the day of my regeneration, the day that I was born again, Christ bared my sin, I imputed all my sin to Christ, and He thus imputed all His righteousness to me. So whenever we enter into the throne room of the Lord, as brothers and sisters to worship, we enter in in the righteousness of Christ, not in the righteousness of our own works, of the righteousness of our own merit, least we could boast. That is the fundamental difference between the gospel of the reformers, the gospel of the true biblical understanding of what Christ did on the cross, and a false understanding which leads us into a works-based theology. Now, Gary, how is that important? And how do we point to the fact that Jesus was truly human? Because I do believe that we've grasped the deity of Christ. And what I've done is I've put together a number of verses for us to understand Christ's 
human side better. And it'll be on the screens. First of all, we understand that he had a human body. The New Testament is clear enough that Jesus has a human body. We see it in John 1 verse 14. Well, it means at least this, that the word became flesh. So this is pointing us to Jesus in the very beginning in Genesis at all creation. When God spoke into existence everything that was created, it was the words of God being carried out by Christ himself. It is the word of God that became physical flesh. His humanity becomes one of the first tests of his orthodoxy. We also see that he was born. This is really important. For him to be truly human, he had to be born. He was born of a virgin. He was born of Mary. We see that in Luke 2. We also understand that he grew. We see that in Luke 2, 40 and verse 52. We also understand that he grew tired. We see that again in John 4, verse 6. We also see that he got thirsty, John 19. We also see that he became hungry, that he became physically weak in Matthew 4, 11. We also see that he died. Ultimately important to point us to his humanity in Luke 23 and that he had a real uh, human um, body after his resurrection. Why is that important? Because it's important for us to draw the conclusion that whenever we are resurrected at the end times, whenever the earth and the heavens are renewed and we are lifted up out of the grave, we are going to get physical human bodies. This is how we point people to the fact that he was fully and truly human, his human body. Next, we see his human heart. Well, the gospel, Jesus clearly displays human emotions. Here it begins and to get a little more difficult for us to fully understand how it works between his humanity and his deity. But whenever Jesus was, whenever he had heard the centurion's words of faith, he marveled. His humanity is being shown how he marveled in the gospel of Matthew. He says that my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Showing his humanity and how he felt the emotions of sorrow. You see that in John 11. We also see that Jesus deeply moved in his spirit. We see the fact that it continues on that, that he was troubled. And on and on it goes in many different verses. And all this is pointing us to his humanity. And the fact that he had a human heart, so to speak. The next is his human will. Okay. Why is his human will important? Because again, as it, as it reads there, that I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, John 6. Jesus prays to the Father, not as I will, but as you will. Again, the wrestling between his truly being divine and his truly being human. So we put all these things together and we, we understand that whenever it comes to this understanding of Christ, comes to the imputation of righteousness, what does that mean for us? And we see this clearly if you turn in your Bible to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, 
Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So what is the argument here? The argument is, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you are truly born again, Christ's righteousness is upon you. So therefore, just like whenever Paul says, are we meant to just keep on sinning like grace abound? No, Paul is pointing us to the fact here, it is the very reason that we are in Christ. It is the very reason we have been raised with Christ, that we are to start to set our minds on the things that are Christ. And he says, put to death, therefore. What is the therefore for? Therefore, because you are as righteous as Christ is righteous, therefore put to death all the things that lead to unrighteousness. And he names them. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of this, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked. And this is the difference between understanding true biblical doctrine of sanctification and justification is and what separates us from the Catholic Church. It is not by our works. We are very quick to get into the mindset of thinking when we come to pray to God, if it's after you have fallen short, if it is after you have sinned, if it is after the many things that he goes on to list here, we can sometimes think that we're not good enough to come into the presence of God. And in our arrogance, it's also true the other way. Well, I've been doing quite good this week. I haven't been delving into things that I used to do. Therefore, I can come before God and He's going to be pleased with me. That is a wrong way of thinking. That is a works-based way of thinking. We come before God this morning, no matter what it is that you have done this week, you come before God if you have repented genuinely and you truly are raised with Christ. You come before Him, not as Gary Brown or anybody else in here. You come before God and He sees Christ. He sees the righteousness and the life lived by his son on this earth. He understands and sees the fact that you are complete and truly righteous in his sight. By nothing that you have done apart from faith alone. Again, if we had time to go into this morning, we could go and look at how this is right throughout the Old Testament. How was it that Abraham was counted righteous? It wasn't by circumcision, it wasn't by works, it was by faith that he was counted righteousness. And we also understand that nobody in the Old Testament or the New Testament was made righteous before a holy God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that reaches back to the beginning of time and forward to the end of time. And every single saint that came before Christ and every single saint that came after Christ was made right before God by the substitution and atonement of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's the gospel. They were righteous because of their faith in Christ who was to come. And we are righteous because of our faith in Christ who has come and is to come. And it is his righteousness that is imputed to us that makes us right standing before a holy God. That is the gospel. 
And we have to start to grasp this and understand this better. Even though we've looked at the deity extensively throughout the Ego Emis, we have to make sure that we do not lose Christ's humanity. For that is the thing that makes us righteous. We are justified by his deity. We are justified by the sacrifice upon the cross. And we are made righteous by his humanity. The life that he lived that we are incapable of living. The other way of looking at it is the wrong way in which the, the Catholic Church still clings after the Reformation. That it is not imputation of righteousness. It is imparting of righteousness. Therefore, if you're here today and you're conquering sin more than the person beside you, you truly are doing well, brethren. Let us lift us, lift you up, let us exalt you and let you pat yourself on the back because it is by your works that you're being made righteous. It is by your sacrifice that you're being made righteous and that is a false gospel. Least we be accursed because that is a different gospel from which Christ preached. We also, I think, we have. Go to the next slide, Craig. We also see this in Jesus, like us in every respect: human body, human heart, mind, and will, except for sin. In Hebrews two seventeen, it says, "Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest, the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." He understands every temptation that you go through. He understands the pain and the hurt of loss. He understands betrayal. He understands fear. He understands sorrow. And he understands a groaning within your spirit too deep for words. Jesus Christ was as human as you are. Felt every emotion that you felt. And yet is as holy and as righteous as God himself. Truly human, truly divine. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. This is the beautiful thing about the gospel. This is the truth about the imputation of righteousness for us as a believer. Jesus Christ knows every single thing that you are going through. For he himself has faced it and conquered it. We fall short. We stumble. We fall. We are unable in the frailty of our flesh to live the life in which we've been called to live by a holy, holy, holy God. Therefore, why do we worship God and Christ this morning? Because it is by His work, His propitiation, His paying for our sin, and His righteousness that makes me or you stand in the presence of Almighty God with Christ as our High Priest, as Christ as our Mediator, to say that I am righteous, not because of what I did. I am righteous because of what Christ has done. I give and imputed my sin to him. He gave and imputed his righteousness to me. This is the hope of understanding the ego emis, understanding the fullness and the trueness of who Christ was. Truly divine, truly human. So again, as we close this morning, what does that mean for us? It means whenever we come to understanding the passage that we've just went over, how Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
Jesus Christ is our bread. He is the sustainer. He is everything. He is the propitiation of our sins. He is the righteousness in which we have availed in. He is God. He is Savior. He is King. And we, therefore, are righteous because of what He has done and not by what you have done. Fight that temptation the devil wants to place in your lap this morning. Well, I'm not good enough to go to church. I'm not righteous enough to pray. That's why I love that passage in James whenever he says about how powerful the prayers of the righteous man is. That's every single born again believer. Everybody who has been raised with Christ. You are righteous and your prayers are powerful in working. It is the devil who wants to come and to kill and steal that thought in your mind. To say that you are not righteous before holy God because you are sinful. That's why for many people you have what can be described as a holy schizophrenia. Maybe this will make sense to you. Where you have the new self that knows what is true, knows what is glorious, knows what is good, knows that therefore because of the righteousness of Christ that's been given to you and the Holy Spirit that is renewing you from the inside out, you're able to fight temptation and to set aside the things that we read in Colossians 3 and on as it goes. Yet, there is the old self that constantly wants to place thoughts in your mind, constantly wants to make you doubt, constantly wants to come and say, you know that's not really you. This is really you. This is what you want to do. And you then can either do one of two things. You can either stand in the Word of God and say, no, I am a new creation. I am raised with Christ. It is His righteousness that makes me right before a holy God. Therefore, devil... I can set aside the carnality of my old self. Not that I have to to make myself righteous because I am righteous before God. I will come before my heavenly father. I will pray and know that he hears my prayers because I am his son. He sees me as he sees Christ. He sees me in the fullness of righteousness that was that was and is Christ Jesus. He sees not the life that I live, but the life that Jesus Christ lived. Therefore, he hears my prayers, he intercedes for me, and he gives me the strength to say no, even though your old self speaks to you in your ear. Know who you really are. You are the new self. You are that voice that knows the word of God to be true, knows that you're set apart, sanctified, no longer part of this world, and also knows that even though you may fall, even though you may stumble, even though you may have a thorn in your flesh, even though you desire to do the things that you know that are right, yet you do the very thing that you know that you ought not to do. And the devil comes and says, See, you are not righteous, you are not changed, you are not born again. Christ is no bread. He is not satisfying you because you still want and desire the old things. You stand upon the truth of God's word this morning and say, No devil, I'm righteous. Therefore, I reject what you have because I have the fullness of the bread of Christ. I will never be hungry for this world. I will never be thirsty for this world. And praise God that he in his mercy has yet not revealed to you how much of a sinner you truly are. Could you imagine at the point of regeneration, at the point of giving your life to Christ and God completely opened your mind to how sinful and wretched you are, we would not be able to cope with the burden. It is as Paul said, I am a sinner. 
I am the chief sinner. I am the greatest sinner. As we progress through the sanctification process, as we progress in our understanding of God's word, praise him that he is slow and merciful in allowing us to set aside the things of this world. So why do we set aside the things of the world? For your righteousness? No, because of your righteousness. Why do we turn aside from the desires of the flesh? Because to make yourself holy before a holy God? No, because I am holy before a holy God. Because I used to walk in darkness, but now I walk in light. I am right. I am righteous. I am in the perfect standing that I could possibly be. I am the completeness of Christ's embodiment before God Almighty. This is why we can enter in through the curtain that was torn. That no longer we need a high priest. We have a high priest which is Jesus Christ. And that God hears the prayers of the righteous. And that we align ourselves with the will of God. Not my will be done Father. But your will be done. Why? Because I'm righteous and made holy. And cleansed and clothed. With the fullness that is Christ Jesus. Is that not good news this morning for us? Is that not the news that we need to hear whenever it comes to fighting the devil? Is that not the news that we need to hear when we go out and we tell people who are caught up in the midst of sin to say Christ paid the price for it? It does not matter what your sin is. It doesn't matter if you're a liar or a fornicator or a murderer or a thief. It matters not what your sin is, whether it be gossip or slander or whether it even be obscene talk that comes out of your mouth. Christ paid the price and as we progress in our knowledge and understanding and through the sanctification process, know one thing to be true that keeps us humble amongst those who are newer in their faith or amongst a brother or sister who stumbles. You are no more righteous than the person today who has just been saved and just walked out of the deepest, darkest depths of sin. You are as righteous as that person, not by your works, but by the work of Christ upon the cross and the life that he lived. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us set aside the things that we once walked in and the things that we once did and understand the fullness and the trueness of Christ as divine and Christ as human. Amen? That's pretty. Father, we thank you for this word this morning, Lord. We thank you, Father. We have looked in depth, Father, into the I am statements, Father. We thank you, Lord, in Sola Scriptura. We, we looked at how you moved. We looked at the importance, Father God, of the gospel. That if the people do not hear the gospel, they cannot be regenerate. For it is the preaching of the gospel that leads people to salvation. For it is the hearing of the gospel and the drawing of your Holy Spirit that reveals the truth and the goodness and the fullness of Christ Jesus, Lord. And we thank you this morning for those of us who have been raised with Christ, Father. We praise you, Lord, for the accomplishment of the cross. We praise you, Father, it is not by our works, least we could boast, Father. But, Lord, may we be humble. May we be loving, Father, in the understanding that not one person in this room has anything to boast in apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, the price that was paid, the fact that we all deserve death, Father God, and yet you in your mercy chose us to see the goodness of your Son, the fullness of the sacrifice paid, and to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and 
the imputation of righteousness given to us by Christ Jesus so that we come before you now this morning, God, not as who we once were or by the names we were called at our birth, but as sons and daughters, you see Christ when you see us. You hear us, Lord, as you hear Christ. For we have the fullness of the righteousness of Christ, the fullness of the life he lived, imputed to us, God. Father, we ask, Lord, that you hear our prayers this morning, that as we come to disclose and to sing about the power of the cross, Lord, that we sing it with the full zeal that comes from a bursting of the Holy Spirit within us, God, because it is the good news that saves us, Father God. We are redeemed people here this morning. We don't have to dwell in our sins of our past, Father God. We are washed cleaner than snow. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west, Father God. It has been paid for by the stripes on Jesus' back as he hung upon that cross. The fullness of our sin, Lord, was laid to bear upon him. And your wrath, Father God, fell upon him as our atonement for sin. God, that is the good news of the gospel. We praise you for this morning. We ask you, Lord, Help us, Father God, to glorify your name, to glorify your gospel by setting aside, Father, the things of the flesh and the things of the world and listening, Lord, to the new nature and not to the old self that wants to corrupt and lead us away from your presence, Father. God, we thank you and we pray this this morning in the name of our Savior, in the name of our King and our Lord, Jesus Christ. We'll stand together and we'll worship.